for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, we delve into the mystery of how a famed portrait of Winston Churchill taken back in 1941 in Ottawa by Canadian photographer Yusuf Karsh was stolen from an Ottawa hotel and replaced by a replica. We continue our look into Back to School 2022 with a focus on mental health and sleep. We know it's been an anxious stretch for a lot of students out there. Prioritizing a good night's rest can be part of the solution. But first, we mark Ukraine's Independence Day at six months since Russia's invasion, as we hear from a Ukrainian couple who fled death and destruction in Mariupol to start a new life in Calgary, and from a Canadian on the ground in Odessa about the mood in the country today and why Canada should be doing more to support Ukraine. We're going to continue with our look into Ukrainian Independence Day. And one of the big stories, of course, is people leaving Ukraine, uh, seeking refuge elsewhere. A lot of them, of course, have ended up in Poland and neighboring countries. Uh, but quite a few have come here. I mean, this is a staggering statistic overall. 6.85 million is the last I checked, is the number of people who've left Ukraine since the beginning of this war. Um, about 75,000 Ukrainians or permanent residents have come here to Canada. There are many more waiting to come uh, as paperwork gets sorted out. Uh, so as the country marks Independence Day, we wanted to get a better idea of how some people are settling in. Now, Mariupol may not be a place you'd heard of much before this year. Um, that's where my next guests are from. It's in southeastern Ukraine. It's on the water. It's an industrial seaport. It's a place I spent quite a bit of time in, actually, uh, back in 2014. Uh, but it became synonymous with the brutality and destruction that we witnessed during the last six months. Um, it's not too far from the Russian border. It had been on the front lines of the existing war in Ukraine, which was being fought mostly in the Donbass, uh, that region. Um, and Mariupol, still in, under Ukrainian control, was right on the border with that. In fact, there were areas on the outskirts of the city that had been shelled repeatedly over, over time, uh, including when I was there in 2014. So it was an early target for Russian forces as they, as they laid siege to the city, cutting off supplies of food, water, electricity, forcing people into hiding. When the city was finally captured by Russia in mid-May, it was 95% destroyed. As I mentioned, I spent that time there in 2014, walked along its walked through its parks, walked along the, walked along the waterfront, shopped, went to the bank, ate in its restaurants, uh, witnessed some fleeing those early stages of the previous war, the first war back in 2014. So it was really hard to imagine what the city could possibly have been like under siege and what it must have been like for those who lived there, who were used to the sounds of war to some extent, used to having war on their doorstep, but not raining down on them. Well, Angelica Tetrich and Vadim Demishev uh, survived those early days of terror in Mariupol, and they made a long journey, a dangerous and daring escape uh, that brought them all the way here to Canada, to Calgary, where they are building a new life for now. And they join me now. Thank you so much for your time. Hello. Hello. Good evening. Thank Hi. you. Yeah, I, I was I was saying when I was looking at the map again, just trying to figure out, um, yeah. you know, that you were staying near the theater. I stayed at the Spartak Hotel, which was right downtown. I used to walk around that area every night. So when it started, when the when the bombing started, I, I was just trying to picture where all those places were and what was happening. Um, what was your life like in Mariupol, and and what happened in those early days around the twenty fourth of February? Uh, you know, our life was really amazing because uh, we had a like normal life. Everything was really, really nice till 24 of February. Um, no one from us didn't believe that it can happen like so, so fast, like it was. And um, 
Yes, he was there like uh, since the beginning of invasion of Russian soldiers, and it was like terrible news. Like uh, every day, I was thinking, is it really reality or like I don't know. So, yeah. Vadim has a company in Mariupol. I was like a sport coach uh, till the uh, till the uh, twenty-three of February. I have uh, some clients which was asking me. So what can happen if the war is starting like soon? I said like no way. It's it can be like no, and it happens. Yeah, because um, Vadim. I mean, when I was in Mariupol, clearly, I mean, the, the sounds of war. I mean, there was shelling on the outskirts of the city towards the Russian border. Um, you had gotten used to, I expect, to the fact that there was always some fighting going on not too far away, but it never felt like it was going to happen in the city. Yeah, was, we always hear something new. So when, uh, no, uh, uh, a lot of years ago when I started in Donetsk, uh, first uh, when the uh, Russian started the war, uh, we always hear some news what uh, something happened. It's really close to Mariupol, but uh, a lot of military of Ukrainian uh, stay in Mariupol, so we think it uh, was uh, will be all okay. Uh, nothing happening, but uh, and people, some friends uh, call us uh, two days before the war, say the war can start it, uh, what do you think maybe you go away from Mariupol we say, oh, it's not okay I think it's not started, we'll be always will be okay yeah, yeah, so, like, always. Angelica, when it first started, uh, Angelica rather when it first started I, I know that you took refuge. I mean, you had to flee your homes, right? And and you ended up in a in a in a shopping mall in the basement of, I think, yes. not too far from the theater that I remember from when I was there, and that I think everyone now knows from when it was when it was bombed. Um, uh, till the um, so we stayed like uh, the war started the twenty fourth of February. First week we was in our apartments because we had all communication like for one week for first week. And we were staying at home and just watching the news. And we didn't believe that it can be like much, much worse, like soon. And uh, like at second of March, yes, we moved to the basement of shopping mall. Like it was uh, inside of our house, so not so far because for in special basement for a, like which one specialized for a war was right. already full and there was no place for us and we moved to the shopping mall basement and it was not so safety because there was only one exit and like every night we was thinking if something will happen we can just like stay forever there and like impossible to go out because a lot of our neighbors was killed uh, in our backyard because of right. like some no, because you must go cook some cooking, uh, you're cooking on the fire, and uh, bomb can get it. Uh, and another hmm, a time what you don't expect this. Yeah. Now, I understand that at one point after, I think it was 24 days almost of, of, of staying yeah. in Mariupol, uh, you did finally find a way out. Um, yeah. And I gather... Uh, Angelica, you cycled, you bicycled out. Uh, tell me about that. Oh, yeah. Um, it's just like a miracle, you know, because of um, the sun man, we didn't know him. He just came to our house like at uh, 21st of March. And he was, 
thinking that he want to uh, he will found his family but they move like early that he came and he said that he can take us and it, it was really like some chance for us because we were staying there it was impossible to go by walk um because our car was that uh, has like low battery and uh it was like destroyed almost um and we have a great father and grandfather who can don't care well if we can run, yeah. we can something do it, yeah, but, and they yeah, can right. don't, don't do it this. Yeah, right, because so your family's there, right? Yeah, he, so this man, he moved us like to the more safety place in Mariupol, and he leave us, and he said that you need to go. And like on the on the next, like second day after this, we moved by Volk to the next city. It's named Urzuv. It was mm -hmm. like 30 kilometers. It's take like all day, and at evening when we came, like, to the some like village, uh, we found the car and the pool put all of our family members to this car. It was almost full, no place more. And we had a, one bicycle. And that's why I choose that I need to go by bicycle. It was night and uh, it was so dangerous. But I said, I can't do this because I'm a professional sportsman. No problem for right. me, but it was so. So, so, so you cycled thirty kilometers behind the car. Is that right to, to get out? Uh, uh, firstly, we walked thirty kilometers, and after right. this plus thirty kilometers, some family members was in the car, and I uh, rode drive by bicycle. Yes, so altogether it was around sixty kilometers oh. in a day, the same day. Yeah. And, and Vadim, when when you finally made it out, um, did you know where you were going to go? Mm, no, like in the Cayman Zoo, maybe we one week uh, think uh, what we can do it uh, when we go, when we go, what we do. No, we don't know what we. Like no idea. Yeah. We was not ready for this because you never mind that it, it can be so seriously like it happened. Uh, and yes, we choose the Canada because like. It's safety. It's it's so far from from Russia and it's safety place. And we, when we came here, we, we understand that we made the right choice because it's a really amazing place, especially Calgary. We loved it. It is my great pleasure to welcome Angelika Tetrich and Vadim Dimishev to the show this half hour. They are just finished talking about how they managed to flee Mariupol. You may remember uh, the city of Mariupol heavily bombarded in the early days. Uh, of the war in Ukraine right through to May. The city today is 95% destroyed. Um, and, and Angelika and Vadim were talking about how they managed to get out after spending more than three weeks there, wondering where to go, what to do. Um, and they finally made it to Calgary. And I guess that's where we'll start the next half of this interview is just to talk about how you arrived there and what it was like when you first got there. What were your first impressions of your new city? Uh we came to the to the Calgary and uh, we found uh, our host here. Uh, his name is Mark Kozak and he helped us a lot. It's the first person that we, we really like, love, like like a father Canadian here uh, because of, uh, yes, he showed the city and he gave understanding that people really want to help as they can because like, you know, we came without nothing, only with our animals, without any clothes, any bags on our animals and we are, and documents, of course. So, right. uh, yes. And his yeah, uh, right. father from Ukraine. <laughs> 
Right. Okay. So there's a bit of a, how have you found it settling in um, after all that you've been through? I can imagine that the memories of those weeks in Mariupol and what happened must be still very fresh for you. What has it been like to try to settle into a quiet, a quieter life so far away from that war? Uh, only here I was feel myself really in safety place because even when we moved to the Europe for a few days, because you, we had a flight from Germany, I didn't feel myself like it's it's really we can stay for so long and it can be safety place. No, I was thinking that we need go like we, we need move um, much far away. And only here I was start to feel myself really um, much better. And uh, yes, all these memories, of course, they stay in our heads. But uh, you know, <laughs> it's we got uh, uh, much more better memories here, and we meet good people. And and you have you have a, a big day coming up, a, a big yeah. memory, something that you were supposed to oh, do yeah. in Mariupol. Yes. I gather you'll be doing here in Calgary. What's happening on Saturday? So we will have a wedding here in Ukrainian Orthodox Church. It's at Sunday. We was planning to do this at uh, this summer, but you know <laughs> everything's changed. But we didn't delay it uh, because you know we yeah we we go on throat like big. Yeah, it'll it'll be such a special day, I guess. And yet here you are in your new in your new yeah, hometown, yeah, in your we, new city. Yeah. yeah, we want to start our new life with uh, like a family here in Calgary, and we want to create a family here. Yeah, uh, Vadim, I I know that you both have. I I understand that your parents are are, are they still in the area? Are they still in Ukraine? Mm, yeah, all our parents in Ukraine. Uh, we from Mariupol go. My parents uh, go to Mother uh, Angelica, live closer to Kiev, and uh, now we uh, wait. Visas, yeah, waiting, yes. waiting the visas, and uh, they go to here. Yeah, we already rent a house for them. We waiting for them. We are thinking that they will come for our wedding day, but they still waiting for a visa, but. Yeah, a lot of people apply for this visa, so we can understand why it's, why yeah, it's, it's for tough. Some, I, um, I'm sure you'll be able to celebrate when they all arrive, right? When you have oh, yeah. be able yeah, to have sure. a, a second wedding day, sort of. Yeah, um, like family. <laughs> family I always family. ask, you know, I've spoken to lots of people who've left Ukraine, and so many of them, especially those who are still very close by, so many of them talk about wanting to go back. You know, one day we'll go back. One day we'll go uh -huh. back. Would you like to do you do you think about going back or is that is is that not something you're thinking of right now? Uh, only maybe for a visit because uh, for me, like this country and city, uh, I feel myself already like it at home. Everywhere I can see like some super Ukrainian flags, a lot of Ukrainian people, and like we, no way for us go back because we lost our house in Mariupol. So um yeah, we want to stay here, get a permanent residence, citizenship, like whatever, and stay here. Yeah. Yeah. And what have you been doing? I mean, how have you been settling in? What What does a day look like? Are you Are you taking English classes? Are you starting trying to figure out how to start a business? Are you Do you want to do what you did back in Mariupol in in Calgary too? Um. Yes. When we came, we start 
employment skills uh, trainings. It was our first training here. Then it was English classes in Bow Valley. And uh, in, the first, in the end of first month, uh, being in here in Calgary, we start to work. Vadim has a like, similar job. Uh, he working in a solar plant installation company because he has a company in Mariupol, like also with the solar panels. He was like an owner. Right. But yeah, here he need to start like a worker and it's okay, of course. And also for me, I, I found a job like very close to my profession. Like I'm a sport coach and I found some position in a state wellness center. So yeah, we found well, I mean, some place for us here. So you, 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 found, you found a new home? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, Vadim and Angelica, thank you so much for your time. I wish you the happiest of wedding days. Congratulations. Thank and you so uh, much. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I look forward. Uh, hopefully, we'll speak to you again at some point uh, when you can tell us a bit more about maybe your first year in Canada, for instance. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. Have a great night. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye now. Today was Ukrainian Independence Day. Uh, we talked about this last night. We're going to take a slightly different tact tonight. Uh, we will figure out, though, we will find out what it was like in Ukraine today. Of course, it's the six-month mark since Russia's full-scale invasion of the country. Uh, President Zelensky had been warning that Russia might do something particularly nasty this week, and uh, there was a bombing today at a train station in the country. 22 people were killed there, but in Kyiv, a steady stream of people uh, still came to the city center today where they've lined up all these Russian tanks and so on that have been captured or destroyed during the war. They put them along the route that Russia had hoped to have their victory parade on soon after this war began. Instead, it's turned into something of a uh, tour of a destination for people in Kyiv to come and celebrate Ukraine's resilience. So although events were canceled this year, the ones that would normally take place, there were a lot of people downtown um, celebrating in that way. Zelensky, the president, also said that Ukraine will win this war, that they are a nation, quote, reborn in conflict with a renewed sense of cultural and political identity. Uh, the day was marked around the world with well wishes, including here in Canada. NATO allies offered more support. Outgoing British Prime Minister Boris Johnson visited Kiev and, or Kiev rather, and the U.S. confirmed a new security assistance package of about $3 billion to Ukraine. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg says the NATO alliance will stand by or will not stand by as Russia threatens its neighbors. When we live in a more dangerous world, when we see the aggressive actions of uh, President Putin against uh, a sovereign, uh, peaceful nation in Europe, Ukraine, and all the threatening rhetoric against uh, NATO allies, then we need to invest more. Uh, and that's exactly what uh, NATO allies are uh, doing. Stoltenberg will visit Canada over the next few days. Canada's parliament, meantime, in Ottawa, will be lit up in blue and yellow this evening, or is lit up in blue and yellow to mark Independence Day. Uh, Prime Minister Trudeau said it's a tribute to the country's bravery uh, tonight. Canada, of course, the first Western country to recognize Ukraine's independence back in 90, 1991. Well, to get a better idea of what the mood was like there today, what lies ahead, joining me now is global affairs analyst Michael Borsicu. He's a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council and a Canadian who spent a lot of time in Ukraine over the last six months. He's in Odessa tonight. Thanks for your time. Uh, it's good to be back with you, Ben. I guess just the mood there today, I mean, usually 
the 24th is a day of celebration and flag waving, but it's I got the sense from afar, at least, that this was a bit of a day of quiet defiance instead of uh, outright celebration. Yeah, indeed. Um, I, I just came back from um, a stroll around Odessa, basically the beachfront, and uh, definitely far, far fewer out on the street than you can normally see on a day like today. Uh, the big fear being that uh, Russia will send those long-range uh, rockets this way. Uh, it's been pretty peaceful so far, but I think we've had about four or five air raid siren alarms so far today. Um quite a few the day before yesterday so um of course the the anxiety is heightened by a number of things i mean we just a few days ago was that uh car bombing in moscow of the daughter of the uh russian propagandist uh, mr dugan right. uh russians right away blaming uh, ukraine for that so uh we um we kind of all thought that that was perhaps a you know, a white flag operation that it was a manufactured um, event where they would use it uh, for an excuse to attack. Now, um, elsewhere in Ukraine, there have been uh, missiles flying um, in places we don't usually see. For example, Cherkasy, which is uh, south of uh, Kiev, not that right. long of a drive, actually, a couple of hours drive. Um, uh, Kharkiv also has been getting pounded very heavily. And then a few other cities in, in the south and east and uh, also been um i think it was just yesterday uh there were some rocket strikes on the headquarters of the so-called donetsk people's republic yeah right, right. in donetsk city so wow. okay yeah we've been that there was, yes yeah yeah that yeah. was that was quite something to see as well so yeah and people are taking it in stride um not really a day of celebration but i kind of i think a day of stock taking a lot of people thinking how much longer is this going to go on? Should my friends and relatives return from overseas? So a lot of time to think about um, what the next six months will be. And of course, lots and lots of legitimate concern about the heating season here. Um, you may recall, Ben, being here that a lot of the you know, towns and villages um, have uh, centralized heating, those old right. above ground pipes. And uh, not only their fears that the Russians will knock those uh, that infrastructure out, but also that there won't be enough gas to go around to. So quite a lot to, to, to ponder today. Yeah. Sure. I mean, I mean, and for you too, I mean, just six months in now, and it seems like time has both flown by and stood still since uh, we were speaking right before uh, the invasion began. Uh, when you look back now, I mean, there's certainly some, some things that I think have been uh, surprising. Uh, Ukraine's ability to defend itself mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. has been surprising. Russia's inability uh, to, yeah. to be more successful has been uh, surprising. But what has really stood out for you in the last six months? I know that's a loaded, there's a lot in that question. Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> Not at all. Um, definitely Ukraine's ability to defend itself. Uh, now, let there be no mistake, they've taken heavy losses as well. Um, human losses, The there aren't really official figures out there, but we do know for sure that it's in the thousands. We do know that, um, I mean, I know, per, you know, from personal observation in the view of seeing these military funerals that a lot of the guys being sent back uh, are very, very young who are being buried. So um, these guys are working extremely hard, the Ukrainian armed forces. I mean, I've met a couple of guys now uh, traveling around the country by train, and uh, some of them then are taking their first break in about five months. Yeah. And they're only coming home for a few days and then going back to the battlefield. I cannot imagine what kind of stress and, you know, kind of physical um, 
stress as well that they, they're under. But uh, now they're, you know, using more technology. They're getting a lot more of the weaponry that uh, Zelensky backed for at the beginning, uh, more long range capability, more precision capability. So that is going to be really good. That will, you know, not require uh, the Ukrainian Armed Forces servicemen to be right there on the front line. And uh, the other thing that has really stood out to a lot of us is, my goodness, what have we had now three or four uh, significant strikes in Crimea, um, in including on, you know, the Russian uh, military jets that were parked there. Uh, and these do appear to be uh, the work of uh, entities that were there um, earlier in the war, before the war, probably even special forces. So that's been really interesting to watch. Um, I, I I noticed uh, Zelensky in his speeches today and yesterday, he's mentioning Crimea more, that Crimea will re be returned to Ukraine. So the other thing uh, we're watching for is um, whether the temptation to reach further um, will hit the Ukrainians. And what I mean by that is, for example, there's that Kerch bridge that links Crimea with the Russian mainland. I I would suspect Ukraine does have the capability to severely damage that, but um, no pun intended, that would be a bridge too far. I think that would uh, invite uh, very harsh um, Russian retaliation. And then one more thing, of course, um, no six months into the war, no inch of Ukraine can still be regarded safe. Russia still has uh, the capability to use those long-range rockets that are fired from hundreds and hundreds of kilometers from inside Russia. These can reach uh, Lviv, they can reach the Odessa, they can reach the Ukrainian-Polish border. So um, the Ukrainians have developed more capability in terms of shooting these missiles down. Um, I think uh, the Ukrainian defense minister said a couple of weeks back that you know, they can bring down maybe 30 or 40 percent of them. Uh, so that's helped a lot in terms of defending uh, Ukrainian cities, because it's very, very difficult for life return to normal if uh, the Russians still have that capability in their hands. Yeah, as you pointed out, there's a big difference between fending off defeat and winning, right, in this case. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, exactly. And, um, you know, the um, what the Ukrainians really need, I think, especially in Western Ukraine, where life is returning relatively to normal, I've talked to a number of people about this, is um, a couple of things. One, the Zelensky government can do, and that would be uh, localized martial law. There's not really a need for curfews or for more martial law powers, really, in some Western Ukrainian cities. Um, the deputy mayor of Lviv told me that they would like to see that happen, so it will help spur more tourism and investment to come back. And then the other thing um, that's needed um, in Western Ukraine, especially is linked to what I said earlier, uh, heightened and enhanced ability to close their skies to these uh, long range um, missiles coming from Russia. Uh, I understand that at least for Kiev, uh, the Americans are providing something similar to the air defenses surrounding Washington, DC. That's pretty. That's pretty impressive kit, but yeah. that would definitely help the the capital protect itself. Our guest is global affairs analyst Michael Borsicu. He's a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, a Canadian who's uh, spent a lot of time in Ukraine over the years, including in the last six months. Uh, we've been talking about the six month anniversary of Russia's invasion, as well as Ukrainian Independence Day. Uh, Michael, we'd like to talk about Canada. Canada's obviously mm -hmm. been at the forefront when it comes to uh, big words of support for Ukraine. Uh, is it? Do actions on the ground meet the words back here at home? And how are we perceived there these days? 
Yeah, well, absolutely not. Uh, I think uh, Canada's response has been a big disappointment, not only to the Zelensky government, but also to the Ukrainian diaspora in Canada, which is huge. Um, there, you, you won't be surprised by what I'm about to say, because I've said it at least twice in the Global Mail on the opinion pages, but Canada has basically, the Trudeau government has basically bungled its response to the Ukraine crisis. At the beginning, I think uh, the Prime Minister was obsessed with uh, sanctions uh, that he thought would deter Russia. Well, they did not. In fact, um, uh, Russia had spent a long time uh, kind of inoculating itself against sanctions. And then once they hit, they were pretty well prepared. The country still gets, you know, uh, billions of dollars, uh, billions and billions every month from gas sales. So uh, finally, the Ottawa did wake up and then they started to provide lethal weaponry, but that came belatedly. Um, what is needed now um, is much, much more of this equipment, you know, uh, super bisons, I call the, you know, these super bisons, they're called these uh, heavily kitted out armored personnel carriers, but they're taking a long time to get to Ukraine, I understand. Uh, Canada is also providing things like high definition cameras that can be mounted on drones. So those are very good, but a lot more needs to come. And then you know, there are a few other things, Ben, that you that Ottawa can do immediately. I mean, tonight, if they wanted to. Uh, let's start by expelling perhaps the Russian ambassador or maybe a few other diplomats who we know are not there uh, doing janitorial services in the Russian embassy in Ottawa and stuff like that. Uh, the Russian embassy has been very, very active, uh, uh, putting out a lot of propaganda and false news and misinformation they should have to pay for that. They should have to account for that. Uh, the other thing uh, Ottawa should do immediately is fully restore the operations of Canada's embassy in Kiev. I was there two weeks ago. It shuttered. There's no walk-ins. Um, you know, and meanwhile, we see, um, I, I, you know, I bumped into the Turkish ambassador on the streets of Lviv the other day, and he said, we never left. Uh, we've reduced our staff, but we've always kept the embassy open. So why? Hours needed to be shuttered to the extent it has, I, I don't know. Uh, but, you know, that will not only help uh, uh, Canadians that are coming back here in bigger numbers to go back to work or, you know, work in the humanitarian sector, but it also be, I think, a very important symbolic um, signal to uh, Ukraine that, as Trudeau likes to say, we stand shoulder to shoulder them, with them. And then finally, um, it's embarrassing, but, uh, you know, Canada, with big fanfare, announced this uh, emergency visa program for Ukrainians. Many, 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 many have applied, so many, that now there's a three-month backlog, at least, for Ukrainians to get those visas. Let's, uh, let's ramp up uh, immigration processing staff in Ottawa, in places like Warsaw, uh, the biometric fingerprint system is uh, a debacle. They, you know, it takes a long time to get an appointment in Warsaw or in Lviv. Uh, let's have that um, uh, processing also happening in Kiev. So, uh, because look, the pounding of cities like Kharkiv, Kherson, uh, places like that are very, very bad. And as the winter approaches and probable heating cuts, more people are going to need uh, safe haven and Canada should be providing it. Yeah, one of the things that's come up a lot is Russian tourist visas, right? I mean, the Russians are still traveling, uh, it seems. You were mentioning, I think, the other day that there's a whole parking lot full of uh, expensive cars somewhere. Yep. In, is it in Finland? In, in um, Helsinki, yeah. In Helsinki, yep. yeah. I mean, that's something Canada could do, too. I mean, it, it's, it shocks me that the Russian ambassador is still here, by the way, because clearly yeah. I don't think our diplomatic presence in Moscow is really that effective, to be frank. Right. Um, what about Russian visas? Is that something we could we could look at as well? I gather it's probably Oh, yeah, tough, but... I, I, absolutely. Absolutely. Russian visas. Uh, visas for um, 
the sons and daughters of Russian uh, wealthy people who have bought properties in places like Bradopath in Toronto. Um, let's look at uh, illegally gotten wealth or suspicious wealth that the Russians have laundered and brought to Canada, uh, buying properties and that sort of stuff. But look, none of us, um, our quarrel is not with the average Russian citizen. Right. But uh, what we need to do is send a signal uh, to Russia that uh, they need to be held accountable, especially for the war crimes that are being committed here in, in Ukraine. And um, I, I think that, um, you know, this, uh, this move to uh, prevent Russians from traveling um, will probably hit a sector of Russian society, the uh, St. Petersburg, Moscow elites, the upper middle class, but not the average Russian citizen, because a lot of them don't even have travel passports. But um, it will send a very strong signal to the Russian people that, you know, this is what your government is doing. Uh, because of those actions, uh, this is, these are some of the steps that the West has taken, and uh, maybe it will lead some. It will lead to, you know, some movement in Russia to um, stand up to to the government. But uh, it it is very very uh, uncomfortable, often painful for Ukrainian refugees who are, you know, in Western Europe, for example. And they're seeing these Russians traveling around quite freely, uh, throwing money around in places like Monaco and elsewhere. So I, I think that could that needs to be done. Michael, as always, thank you so much for your time. Stay safe. My pleasure. Thank you. Well, this is a mystery worthy of a great novel. Who replaced the signed portrait of a scowling Winston Churchill, one of the most famous portraits of the 20th century, with a replica? Late last week, a staff member at Ottawa's Chateau Laurier Hotel, which is right downtown, right near Parliament, noticed something was wrong with the portrait that had been hanging in the reading room there for more than 20 years. It wasn't hanging properly. The frame wasn't. And it didn't look the same as the others in the collection. A further inspection revealed the photo in the frame was not the original. So what happened? Now, the story behind that photo is nearly as legendary as the photo itself. It was taken by famed Canadian photographer Yusuf Karsh, and it was taken when then-British Prime Minister uh, Winston Churchill visited Ottawa and spoke to Parliament uh, as World War, the Second World War was raging in Europe in December of 1941. Uh, victory against Nazi Germany was anything but assured, and Churchill, though, was in a defiant mood. When the invasion season returns... The Canadian Army may be engaged in one of the most frightful battles the world has ever seen. We are not asked that the rules of the game should be modified. If any, we shall never descend to the German and Japanese level. But if anybody likes to play rough, we can play rough too. So it was a famous moment, Winston Churchill in Parliament back in 1941. Well, soon after, in the Speaker's chambers in the House of Commons, Churchill came face to face with a young uh, Karsh, well-known in the Ottawa area, there to take a photo of this grand occasion. Churchill had a cigar in his hand at the time, and as he got set to take the photo, Karsh made a bold decision. Like it or not, the cigar had to go. I asked him to remove it. He would not hear of it. So without further... Uh, attempt on my part or thought uh, it was totally spontaneous. I said, forgive me, sir. By the time 
I walked back to my camera, the four feet. He looked so belligerent, he could have devoured me. And uh, then he delivered himself with one of the most eloquent remarks. He said, you can even make a roaring lion stand still to be photographed. Yusuf Karsh there uh, speaking about that famous portrait called The Roaring Lion. It would be on the cover of Life magazine in 1941 and become the most, well, perhaps the most famous portrait of Winston Churchill. It's on the five pound note in the UK now. Well, Karsh, who passed away in 2002, went on to become one of the no most noted portrait photographers of the century. He lived in the Chateau Laurier for 18 years and he had a studio there for 20 from 1972 to 92. That's why the hotel had this collection of his portraits. He'd given them to the hotel, it just made sense, including that most famous one. So where is it? It was replaced by a replica sometime between Christmas Day and January 6th, they now think. Well, with more on this, Jerry Fielder was a longtime assistant of Karsh's. He's now director of the estate of Yusuf Karsh, and he joins me from Boston. Thank you for your time tonight. You're welcome, Ben. So when did you find out that this may have happened? I understand there was a phone call. It was actually, it was an email. Um, uh, first thing, uh, early uh, Saturday morning, the uh, the hotel had noticed that there was something amiss on Friday, and uh, they contacted me the first thing the next day and asked me um, if I could somehow identify whether this was a copy or not. I guess what it boiled down to really was the signature. Is that right? Well. I told them that I, you know, I'm in Boston, they're in Ottawa, and I couldn't see the print. But if they could take a picture of the signature, I could tell if that was the real thing or not. And they did, and they sent it to me, and it was uh, to me an obvious forgery. Um, other people probably wouldn't pay any attention. You go look at a photograph, you don't really pay much attention to the signature and wouldn't know what it's going to look like. So, but it yeah. was a, it was a copy. Yeah, I imagine you you know that signature very well. I do. I do. Um, I mean, we don't know what happened, uh, but there aren't that many prints of this photo out there. I understand that that in the '90s, that there were were no more prints made of uh, from uh, Mr. Karsh's collection. That's right. When, uh, when when he closed the studio in 1992, uh, all of his archive uh, material of of his negatives and uh, documents all went to Library and Archives Canada. And they were there uh, for research and study purposes only. And the part of the contract is they are forbidden to be printed from ever again. So any prints that are out there, legitimate prints that are out there, were made uh, by Mr. Karsh in his studio prior to 1992. Would you have any idea where a copy like this could or would come from? I think with technology today, someone made a scan of something and uh, made a digital print from uh, from the scan. Uh, it's certainly not from the negative. It's uh, um, so that's I haven't seen the print, but that's 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 my my best guess. It's such an important part of his legacy. Um, what impact has it had on you on his on his widow? Uh, I can imagine it's been been a disconcerting few days knowing that this a very important piece of work is out there somewhere and we don't know where it is now. Well, the the first reaction from me and also from Estrelita, his wife, uh, was just, well, this this didn't happen. This this is this is impossible. There's a mistake somewhere. But once uh once I saw the signature, um, I realized that someone had tried to forge the signature and that it was indeed it was a, a copy. And it's it's very meaningful to Estrelita and and to me. 
because Yusuf Enestolita lived in the hotel for 20 years. His studio was on the sixth floor of, of the Chateau Laurier. The CBC radio was on the seventh floor right above us. And it was a very meaningful place for them. And, and uh, Yusuf had his very first exhibition um, in 1936 in the Chateau Laurier, in the drawing room. So he had a decades-long association with the hotel, lived there, worked there. And when he left in 1998, he gave a collection of six prints to go into the reading lounge as um, a token of gratitude for all the hospitality over the decades. So it was very meaningful for him, and it's a very special print. And I guess, given the association with the Chateau Laurier, a very special, the, the most fitting place for it to hang, I would suspect. Absolutely, yes. Just the portrait itself, I mean, it, 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 the, the words being used since it disappeared, uh, you know, perhaps the most iconic portrait of a, of, a, of a world leader in the 20th century. I mean, the amount of, of, um, of attention that it had got over the years, I mean, this is really, without mincing words, perhaps one of the most important photographs uh, of the last 150 years. It is. And, and it's been said uh, by many people that it's perhaps the most reproduced photograph in the world. And by that, I don't mean that there's all these prints floating around, but it's it's on the five pound note in, in Great Britain now. Um, so people see it every day. It's It's been uh, stamps and coins and um, it's been used in you know, book covers on biographies and cover of Life magazine and Maclean's and Saturday night. And so it's it's been around for a very long time. The Roaring Lion, as it was called. There's an incredible story behind that photo, is there not, about about the moments in which um, a young Yusuf managed to capture it? There is, and and uh, and he's told this a, a number of times. Um, but uh, as as you, as you know, Ben, he gave Churchill came to give a a speech to Parliament in 1941 in the beginning of the war. The war was are very uncertain about what was going to happen. And and Churchill told Parliament that uh, Hitler had said that he was going to wring the neck of, of England like a chicken. And then he paused and he said, some chicken. And of course, as they do in Parliament, they all slapped the tables and cheered and he waited for the pause. Then he said, some neck. And again, that they just went crazy. So right after that speech, he went into the, uh, with Mackenzie King, he went into the speaker of uh, the um, chamber of, of the speaker of parliament and there was a brandy waiting for him and a cigar and uh, Mackenzie king had asked Yusuf to record this historic event that he knew it was going to be a historic speech and it was during the war so Yusuf had set up his cameras but churchill didn't know that uh, he was going to be photographed and he wasn't very happy about it he doesn't so, look very happy about it no well that was that's part of it so, uh, so he told Yusuf, uh, and Mackenzie King said, "You know, we, this, this, we need to record this, and it'll just take a minute." And so uh, Churchill told Yusuf he could take just one. So Yusuf was going to have one chance to do this. Churchill had the cigar, and and uh, he asked uh, Yusuf asked Churchill to to put the cigar in. He held out an ashtray, asked him if he would put it in the ashtray, and Churchill said no. So uh, Yusuf got everything all set up, and, and and the photograph he thought was going to be really good, but Churchill had the cigar, and he didn't want that. So he went up and he said, "Forgive me, sir," and he took it from his lips. 
And uh, and this is a story that's been around for a very long time, but there are a lot of people in that room who confirmed this story. And uh, so he took it from his lips and he walked back. And as he said, when I, by the time I got back to my camera and looked around, he looked as if he could have devoured me. And he had that look of determination and, and scowling. And so uh, that was that was the photograph. In an age of camera phones and so on, uh, the fact that he had one chance and one chance only to capture that moment and did speak so much about his talent. It really did change his life, did it not? It did. Um, it uh, He'd been very successful in, in Ottawa and was a, a, a friend of Mackenzie King, who had become an early patron of his and, and a supporter of his because he recognized the talent. Um, he had a long association with Lord Tweedsmuir, who was governor general during that period, and before him, Lord Besborough. So he was he, he had a very successful career in Ottawa, but this launched him into an international career. And uh, this was this photograph was um, seen all over the world very quickly. And two years later, he was invited to come to England, and um, he photographed uh, Princess Elizabeth at the time, who I think was 18, something like that. Photographed her six more times during her life, uh, all through her, her reign. And he photographed her, her, her father, uh, King George VI, and her mother, Queen Elizabeth, and George Bernard Shaw, and... Somerset mom and a number of people, and they were all wonderful photographs. And so this wasn't just a, a one-time thing. People could see that this was an enormous amount of talent. And from there, he had a, a career that lasted another 50 years. And uh, he was in demand all that time until he closed the studio and retired. I think the word, the number you used was 15,312 people, uh, many of them that people will have heard of. That's That's a remarkable record. You, you're absolutely right. You've got a good memory. <laughs> that was, that's the exact number. And I had to count them at one time in my in my career. So uh, that's how I know. Yeah, I, I, I saw an interview that you'd done and took that number from you, from you by the way. <laughs> um, did he ever talk about that photo uh, later in his life? I mean, I know he had told the story of that day over and over again, but did he ever reflect on just the impact that that one image had had on, on his career? He he did, but he he was someone who lived in the present and moved on. So he didn't he didn't live with stories from the past. But you know, he certainly acknowledged in 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 speaking with people and in, in writing about how much that photograph changed his his life and his career. And he was such a gracious man. And I remember him saying to me one time, "If I have to tell that story one more time, I'm going to die." <laughs> but if someone asked him, he was so gracious and they were hearing it for the first time and they wanted to hear it. So he was very accommodating, but it wasn't that he was dragging out this story again. It's that people wanted to hear it from him. Yeah, I can imagine. When you look at just the value of this painting, I know there was another copy out there somewhere that sold not that long ago at an auction, but it strikes me that, that signed copies of this photo, specifically this one, would be invaluable. Yes, yeah. There is a very large, the largest photograph we ever made, 40 inches by 60 inches, huge. And the government had special trays made for us to develop this. And uh, because they wanted it in, in, uh, in the chamber of the speaker. So if you go into the chamber of the speaker uh, today, um, there is this very large original print by Yusuf signed at the exact spot where Churchill stood uh, to have the photograph taken. I can't imagine one could sell this easily uh, out there. So where could this possibly wind up? 
That's a good question, Ben. Um, and I think all of us have been asking that. Um, is this someone who went to all of this trouble because they want that photograph on their wall? And if it's on their wall, aren't people going to say, uh, where did that come from? Yeah, I recognize that. Yeah. Um, and, but you can't sell it at a garage sale or on eBay either. Um, so um, it's something that the, the police are looking into and they have some ideas about this. And I, I, I can't really share those, but uh, it would be a, a very difficult thing to, to sell. Clearly, though, for you and everyone associated with Mr. Karsh, the importance would, to be, would be to see that portrait hanging back in its rightful place soon. Yes, absolutely. Um, it, it is, as you, as you say, it, it's, it's beyond value. It has sentimental value. It has historic value. It has artistic value. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's one of a kind. And I imagine, like everyone, you're asking anyone who knows anything about this to speak up. Yes, and there's been a lot of uh, publicity about this, which has been great, because um, people are are contacting the police with thoughts and ideas and tips, and um, so we'll see where all of this leads. Well, Jerry Fielder, thank you so, so much for sharing the story of that famous portrait, and uh, of course, all of us hope that it's hanging back in the Chateau Laurier next time any of us have the great pleasure of wandering through the other photos of Mr. Karsh's that also hang there these days. Well, it's been a pleasure talking with you, Ben. Thank you. We're continuing our look into Back to School 2022 this week. We're going to shift to the importance of mental health and just how vital sleep is for students, crucial to overall physical and mental health as they head into the new school year. The pandemic has obviously been an anxious time for many, and that's no less true for kids of all ages. And that's impacted sleep as well, not just for adults. We've talked about that a lot, but for kids too. Studies in the U.S. show that 70% of high school students don't get the recommended 8 to 10 hours sleep they need on school nights. 60% of middle school students are in the same boat. In Canada overall, it's estimated about a quarter of kids just don't get enough sleep, period. Uh, and it's shown that those who don't get enough sleep, or if you do get enough sleep, it improves academic performance. If you don't, um, you know, it, it leaves you more vulnerable to, to other things, such as chronic diseases and so forth. It also supports healthy brain development. All of this is important. So as we head back into school, we're going to focus not just on mental health, but also on the key role that sleep plays when it comes to good mental health. And to help us with that, I'm joined by the CEO of the Canadian Mental Health Association, Margaret Eaton. Thank you for your time tonight. Thank you. I know you've been focusing a lot on just the whole issue of sleep uh, over the past while. We know that uh, during the early days of the pandemic, sleep became a much talked about issue. It always has been, but it became a much talked about issue. You're focusing now on kids, on students, really. Uh, what is the importance there? Where do you see the problem? Well, sleep is really critical for us to function both mentally and physical, physically, and it's something we should be thinking about as children and youth are heading back to school. So CMHA and Sleep Country wanted to highlight the powerful impact of sleep on mental well-being. Um, I know that just in general, I don't know if you've been seeing this, but we get the sense that, you know, this has been a tough few years for kids, lots of changes, yeah. lots of sort of outside ominous things going on, pandemic. It must be a time of anxiety for, for kids and sleep uh, must be one of the solutions to that. 
Yeah, it is an anxious time for children, especially with the amount of change that kids have gone through um, with lockdowns, with um, school being closed, um, or not even being able to kind of start their life, like young people wanting to go away to university or college and not being able to do that. And then there's a an echo anxiety that children have been experiencing. There's quite a lot of research to show the kids are quite anxious about the environment. So it is a time to take a look at sleep. Um, unfortunately, one in four Canadian children and youth are not getting enough sleep. And we know one in five Canadian youth are affected by a mental illness. And oftentimes, um, mental health challenges begin in childhood and adolescence. So paying attention to sleep as uh, a critical function for mental health is really important. Are we seeing it right across the spectrum when it comes to uh, to this problem with sleep for kids? Yes. Well, when they looked at um, research, they were actually looking at kids from the ages of five up to 17. And that was where they found it was all ages um, to to various degrees that um all Canadian, at least this one one quarter of Canadian children and youth are not getting enough sleep. I understand one of the big impacts can be for teens, right? Because they're changing and sometimes their sleep patterns change as well as they age. And it becomes difficult to uh, to maintain a schedule that's very much been set in place for a very long time when it comes to students, you know, up early and uh, early to early to rise and early to bed, I guess, was the, is the uh, is what it's built around. But it's tough for teens sometimes to to fit into those schedules and certainly difficult uh, for slightly older students. Mm-hmm. Yes, for teens, especially because their bodies and brains are changing so rapidly as they develop. And oftentimes they find they need more sleep. And uh, there does seem to be this trend, too, of teens going to bed later and wanting to wake up or, or wanting to wake up later. So some school districts have even started to change the start time for school to try to accommodate the fact that so many teens need more sleep and are having trouble getting it. And we think that's often too because of the influence of screen time. Right, of course. Um, yes, we have lots of uh, lots of evidence of that. There's so much, so many distractions out there, right? Mm-hmm. It used to be back in the day, it was you know maybe a transistor radio, but now you have the world at your fingertips, uh, even in your room at uh, at that mm-hmm. age. Uh, what sort of impact does does a lack of sleep have on mental health and kids generally? Well, we know that um, studies have shown that youth who don't get enough sleep um, actually have um, oftentimes problems with learning, problems with attention. Um, memory is um, one of the things that's affected by lack of sleep, because while we are asleep, our brains are processing what happened during the day so that we can remember it and, you know, get a great score in that test the next day. So um, memory is definitely one of the things that can be impacted and be behavior. Um, Kids who get better sleep are generally uh, not as plagued with behavioral issues. And it just generally having good sleep helps overall mental and physical well-being. Is it something that I mean, I I think we've always known that, um, but is it something that we haven't maybe paid enough attention to? Or is all the changes that have happened in the last 20 years, especially technologically, has it just impacted our old ways of getting kids to sleep. I mean, it used to be, you know, turn off the light, close the door. But now, as you mentioned earlier, there's so many distractions out mm-hmm. there. Um, there's so many other ways to communicate with people. It's not just the family phone, right? That you could that you could police. It's harder to police, a, you know, a personal cell phone or those sorts of things, especially for teens. 
Yeah, yeah. I know of one parent that turns off the Wi-Fi. You know, 11 o'clock, all the Wi-Fi goes off. And I thought, well, that's an interesting way to try to control the usage. But that would affect the parents, too. Um, so I do think it is much more challenging than it than it once was. These distractions are powerful. Um, and that whole connection with social media and wanting to keep up with your friends and knowing what's going on with them, I, I think that that can be doubly hard for parents as they're thinking through how do they... Um, create that environment in which kids want to go to sleep and and appreciate that it's important for their health and their success. Are there any telltale signs? Because obviously there are times where, you're, where your kids are tired, that happens. But are there any telltale signs that it's becoming something more serious? Well, I think one of the things is if they really can't get up in the morning, you know, if, if uh, they're sleeping through alarms or you go in to wake them and they're still um, they're still sleeping hard. So one of the things is that not sleeping well or even sleeping too much can be a symptom of anxiety or depression. Um, and so we're really encouraging parents to pay attention to sleep patterns and open up a conversation. You know, it can be um, a fairly benign conversation to ask your child, how are you sleeping? How did you sleep last night? Were you able to fall asleep easily? Did you stay asleep? Um, and these can all be really important clues to state to the state of mind of your young person. So we encourage people to open up the conversation and find out how kids are feeling. That must be a different conversation, clearly, depending on the age of the child, right? Because uh, as yeah. children get older, you know, the, the whole the whole stereotype of, of the teenager not wanting to get out of bed and go to school is a pretty old one. Uh, but one would think when it comes to sort of uh, problems with sleep, that it would manifest itself in a different way, that you could tell the difference between they stayed up too late, they'll be fine tomorrow versus they're not sleeping well. They're just not sleeping well right, recently. Mm -hmm. Well, and especially with younger ones, if they're having trouble sleeping, that could be a real sign of anxiety. And so, uh, you know, that's where you can have that conversation and even finding out, are there other physical symptoms? So is, you know, is your tummy okay? How's your stomach? You know, um, how's your appetite? Uh, all of these things might be signs of, um, of mental health issues, um, which they may be able to identify first in their body physically before even themselves making the connection to what's going on in their little minds. I imagine back to school is an anxious time, no matter what. And this year, kids will be going back to school, back to class. It's going to change a little bit. Um, it must be an anxious time, no matter what. So probably a time to be on, on fairly high alert, no matter what. Yeah, I think that's so right. Um, it's so important to listen and to talk and to hear how your child is feeling. And there may not be much of a solution to it, but it, it would be very important even just to hear your child's worry and acknowledge it so that they get comfortable telling you about how they're feeling and see how you respond to the expression of, of emotion. And you could even share some of your own emotion about how you're feeling about going back to work. Many people will be going back into the office, perhaps who haven't been before. Um, so sharing that feeling of anxiety or worry is often a way to relieve some of that anxiety. We're speaking with the CEO of the Canadian Mental Health Association, Margaret Eaton, about back to school 2022. It's always a anxious time for kids uh, of all ages. It's particularly given all that's happened over the past few years. We're also talking about the importance of sleep when it comes to maintaining good mental health. Um, I know that you have a campus peer, campus peer support program uh, that you're launching. Tell me how that works and, and, and what it entails. 
Yes, we're so delighted that Sleep Country Canada is making a donation of $100,000 towards our campus peer support program. And the program really came about because we were concerned about university students, especially through COVID, where we knew that uh, on campus there was a lot of anxiety and a lot of mental health issues. So the campus program is um, developing tools and resources to help students become peer supporters. So this whole movement of peer support, I think is fantastic and it's growing. It's the idea that if you've experienced a mental health or substance use challenge, you have some vital um, skills that you can share and experiences that you can share with someone who's been going through a very similar thing. So we've been working on creating a training program, creating tools and resources for students in five campuses across the country so that we can have Students help students, and we're so grateful for Sleep Country for helping us to do that. What does that look like um, on the ground? So people, yeah. for example, students who had trouble with sleep and who found solutions to it can then help other students? Yeah, and people with mental illness. Um, so um, we're reaching out on these campuses to create a core group of students who we can then train. So it's people who feel comfortable talking about their own issues, um, whether that be with anxiety, depression, eating disorders, substance use, um, any of those areas. Then we train them up and then we offer those services of those students to other students to come and meet with them one-on-one -on -one to get support in their recovery journey. And I think one of the beauties I think of COVID is that people are more willing to talk about their mental health challenges. Um, I, I think because so many people experienced anxiety during the pandemic, somehow it's reduced stigma. So we're really hoping that rather than suffering in silence, students will come forward and work with a peer supporter, with someone who's just like them, who's experienced what they've experienced, to actually um, get the benefit of the conversation that you can have with someone who's your age, who's come up with some solutions and is on a recovery journey. I know that companies have done the same. There's often uh, mental health peer support within organizations now that yeah. someone has been trained for this. It's a, it's an excellent idea. So where are you rolling out this this uh, peer support program specifically? And I guess students who aren't in on those campuses can always reach out to you or to one of their provincial CMHAs to to ask about this, right? Right. So we're rolling it out in the University of Prince Edward Island, University of New Brunswick, New Brunswick, Trent University in Peterborough, Medicine Hat College in Medicine Hat, Alberta, and the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. Those are our pilot sites, but there are other CMHA um, campus programs, which you can access um, by visiting our website at cmha.ca and then searching for your local CMHA. Back to the issue of sleep, I guess. So if, if we look at this um, in the broader issue, one of the there's, there are a lot of misconceptions about sleep out there, and I guess they apply to kids as well. And one of them is catching up, um, that, that, that kids are just as vulnerable to not being able, you can't catch up, right, if, you're, uh, if you've missed a lot of sleep. I guess that's another consideration in all this. 
Right. Yeah, there is that notion that we create a sleep deficit. And you can do a little bit of catching up. You know, some people do that on the weekend where they'll sleep in and then they do actually feel, you know, a little bit better from that. But if you are chronically under uh, under the amount of sleep that you actually need to function, um, it's, it's almost impossible to catch up on that. Um, and you do really need to think seriously about changing your sleep habits. So for uh, students young and old, parents of students young and old, any words of advice as we head into the school year? Clearly, mental health has always has probably never been at the forefront as much as it, as it is now. And obviously, the link to sleep is an important one. Mm-hmm. Well, we think it's really important to create a, a solid bedtime routine. And a big part of that is setting a consistent time to go to bed and wake up at the same time every day. So for children and youth, this can be tricky in the summer because oftentimes bedtimes you know, can vary. And so you want to back that up a little bit. So rather than waiting for the night before the first day of school, think about getting ready the week before and slowly changing the schedule back to to being a consistent time that will give them enough time to uh, get that good night's sleep before getting up early for school. It's also really important to wind down before uh, getting into bed. So um, having some quiet time together, reading together. And, you know, um, reading as a family doesn't have to stop when a child learns how to read. Um, you can read to your teenager and have that that time together to unwind. Um, having a warm bath or shower has also been shown to really relax the body and prepare for sleep. And then we also think reducing screen time, of course, as we discussed, it's important for your mind to unplug. And that technology, the bright light, can be very disturbing and doesn't give the brain the right message that it's time to go to bed. So turning off your device is a good idea. And then creating a good sleep environment. So um, be in a comfortable bed in a dark, quiet room. Margaret Eaton, um, thank you so much for your time. Again, always important to highlight the issue of mental health as kids head into a new school year. Great. Thank you so much.